Dyslexia is the most common form of neurodivergence. It affects around 20% of the population, meaning that nearly every occupational therapy professional will have an individual with dyslexia on their caseload at some point. And yet not enough OT-specific research and resources have been devoted to supporting us in our work with this population. Today, we will look at a leading theory of dyslexia that essentially feels like a call to action for OTs to re-examine how needed our skills truly are. This theory proposes that dyslexia is rooted in a sensory processing difference, which really calls to mind our skill set, and the article also pushes us to embrace a strengths-based treatment approach. After we review this article, we will welcome to the podcast Penny Stack, OTD, OTRL, the founder of Dyslexia Rx. She will help us unpack what this all means for your OT practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT-related journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of OT and dyslexia, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT continuing education platform. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify OT assessments to utilize with people with dyslexia. Our second learning objective is you will be able to recognize the areas of intervention OT can contribute to a team approach for dyslexia. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we will bring on Penny Stack to discuss how this could play out in your practice. The article that we are reviewing today is called Theories About Developmental Dyslexia. It comes to us from the Journal of Brain Science, and it was published in 2023. For members of the club, I do have this review written out for you, so if you want to log in and reference it later, you can definitely do that. So as a quick intro to this paper, this paper was written by John Stein, an Oxford professor who has spent much of his career exploring the neurobiological basis of dyslexia. In reading this paper, you are going to feel like you are dropping in on a long-standing heated debate about what dyslexia is, and you absolutely are. I am going to link in our show notes to some extra reading to help you understand this debate and the other side of it, um, but ultimately in reading this paper, I found his summary of the science helpful, so we are diving into it today. So a brief history of dyslexia. Dyslexia means disordered words in Greek and the term was coined in 1884. Back then, the term was applied to post-stroke patients who had lost the ability to read and spell, but whose speech and oral comprehension remained intact. We now call this acquired dyslexia. A few years later, two scientists, Hinshelwood and Morgan, speculated that there may be another form of dyslexia, 
unrelated to stroke. In developmental dyslexia, they explained, individuals develop normal speech and comprehension abilities, but found reading unusually difficult. They proposed that this selective deficit signified that reading must employ a distinct anatomical pathway. They also recognized that developmental dyslexia tended to run in families. Newer science and imaging have continued to bear out this understanding of dyslexia. And for over a century, developmental dyslexia was recognized as a useful diagnosis. Until recently. Next, the author talks about the challenges with the current state of dyslexia. The author of our paper argues that for about a century, dyslexia was in the domain of the medical model, and after that, it transitioned to the domain of educational psychology. This coincided with a linguistic revolution that centered around the nature of phonemes. This is sounding complicated, but hang in with me. This is totally worth understanding. In this view, the essence of reading is translating letters into the sounds that they represent. This is a complicated process as the acoustic sound of each letter is based on the context. While this is a really useful principle, this heightened emphasis on phonology has cast dyslexia as a phonological deficit problem, which has brought up a couple of issues. One, this theory of dyslexia does not explain why this problem occurs. And second, failure to master the phonological principle is inherent in all poor readers and thus does not help differentiate dyslexia from other reading struggles. Given these challenges, some have attempted to invalidate the diagnosis of dyslexia altogether. But the author argues that advancements in neuroscience and genetics continue to support the existence of dyslexia and that properly understanding the condition could help us unearth better techniques for diagnosing and treating it. So in the next section on new theories of dyslexia, the author walks through several different theories of dyslexia and the science behind each. As you'll hear, most of these theories simply describe the differences seen in people with dyslexia. The author ultimately argues that we cannot fully comprehend the condition without having a neurological understanding behind it. So let's walk through some of these differences in dyslexia, and then the author will kind of pull it all together into a neurobiological understanding. So we'll begin with rapid automatized naming. Back in 1976, researchers discovered that dyslexia could be distinguished from other reading difficulties by slowness at rapid automatized naming, i.e. being able to read out loud as fast as possible a list of letters, numbers, or pictures. The problem was not the reader's inability to learn the correct phonemes or the phonics, it was slowed production of the sounds. This theory paints dyslexia as a speech timing and fluency problem. The next area of difference is reduced visual attention span. Increasing evidence shows that people with dyslexia have slower and less accurate visual attention when reading. The next area of difference is visual stress. In this theory, it is the appearance of crowded text on a page that overstimulates the visual system of those with dyslexia, causing visual discomfort. This may be why some people with dyslexia prefer to view text through colored filters. The next difference or theory is sensory signal processing. Compared to typically developing readers, people with dyslexia appear to be particularly poor at detecting stimuli in the presence of irrelevant distractors. 
The next difference is sensory temporal processing. People with dyslexia appear to have timing differences with auditory processing, visual processing, or both. Accurate timing of when the eye lands on each letter is essential when reading, but this is an extremely complex process that may be impaired in individuals with dyslexia. Precise timing when hearing phonemes is a similarly complex process that also may be difficult for people with dyslexia. So those are many of the differences that have been explored in the science over the years and kind of led to their own theories of what dyslexia is. And this author argues that there is one idea to unite all these differences, and this is called the magnocellular theory. The author believes that sensory processing deficit that is present in people with dyslexia can be traced to magnocellular cells, which form a distinct visual pathway. He asserts that these cells are particularly important for proper timing of eye movements, i.e. moving your eyes across the page. And in dyslexia, this particular system is impaired. There is a lot that he has written about this theory and that others have written about it, so I will link to those articles in our show notes. But from here in the paper, the author takes this really interesting turn, and the last third of the paper is about understanding the strengths of people with dyslexia. And to me, this is where the paper just gets really interesting. The author shares that running parallel to the magnocellular pathway is something called the parvocellular pathway. These parvocells are smaller and more connected, processing different types of visual and auditory information than the larger magnocellular cells. The author believes that when the magnocellular pathway is impaired, the parvocellular pathway compensates, giving those with dyslexia unique visual, auditory, and cognitive strengths. So while people with dyslexia may struggle to hold their gaze on small, crowded black and white print, they have shown exceptional skill in distinguishing between red and green, seeing a high level of detail in the periphery of their visual field, quickly deciding whether drawings of objects are physically possible, identifying shapes in ambiguous figures, remembering and reproducing designs in complex figures, and recreating and navigating virtual environments. A lot of the research to this point has focused on the deficits of people with dyslexia, so the strengths like the ones I just mentioned have been far less studied. But after decades of focusing on this diagnosis, the author has come to believe the following. First, that people with dyslexia are drawn to creative and artistic professions. People with dyslexia are overrepresented in a specific set of professions, including aesthetic and artistic vocations, entrepreneurial business, practical engineering, and mathematics and computing. In these fields, there is a long list of exceptionally talented people with dyslexia or who likely had dyslexia, including Caesar Augustus, Leonardo da Vinci, Einstein, Winston Churchill, and Steven Spielberg. The author also believes that people with dyslexia have a more holistic vision. People with dyslexia may be able to pick up more visual detail over a wider area more quickly than people with ordinary brains. This is also called helicopter vision, which means that they may be able to imagine a whole scene from above in all of its detail. People with dyslexia may also have a unique appreciation of music. A proliferation of parvocellular cells may be present in the auditory system of people with dyslexia. So while people with dyslexia may have 
difficulty with timing and picking up rhythm. They are better at detecting a combination of components in a musical chord. This holistic perception of sound seems to bestow on them a better appreciation of the timbre and emotional tone of music. The author also believes that people with dyslexia have a unique abstract cognitive style. While this final observation of his is especially difficult to test, he believes that people with dyslexia may have an unusually holistic way of thinking. As such, he believes that they are especially good at judging personality, seeing every element of a problem simultaneously, lateral thinking, creativity, and inventiveness. So headed into the conclusion, the author believes that various theories of dyslexia converge on an underlying imprecise signaling of magnocellular neurons, which in turn impacts the timing of visual and auditory processing. But while this may cause difficulties with reading, people with dyslexia may have a parvocellular proliferation, leading to exceptional creative, artistic, entrepreneurial, communication, and engineering talents. He says these capabilities should be valued, prioritized, and nurtured. He ends with this quote about people with dyslexia. The unsustainability of the modern world needs their imagination, innovation, and creativity to help us survive. I learned so much from this article and the supplementary reading. And like I said at the beginning, it really opened my eyes to OT's potential role in the identification and intervention of visual perceptual sensory skills and our role in supporting reading success. And I just really loved how it set us up to do this in a really strengths-based way. To dive into the details of what this can look like, I am so thankful to welcome to the podcast Penny Stack. Dr. Penny Stack, OTD, OTRL, CLT, HWC, is the founder and owner of Dyslexia RX and the founder of the Dyslexia Center of Tulsa. Dr. Stack has over 34 years of experience as an occupational therapist, including working with individuals living with dyslexia and their families. As a Navy veteran, a person who grew up with undiagnosed dyslexia, and the parent of a child with dyslexia, Dr. Stack brings a unique lens to understanding the importance of family, community, and supporting one another. For families living with dyslexia, Dyslexia RX is their soft place to land. Dr. Stack is also the Doctorate Capstone Coordinator Assistant Professor at Loma Linda University, where she conducted research on dyslexia and its impact on occupation. So without further ado, I will patch Penny into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Penny. It's great to have you. Oh, Sarah, thank you for having me. This has been just almost a roller coaster of a week for me learning about dyslexia. I think this is a topic where I feel like I've learned the most from reading of any of the topics we've done. It's made me think about how I visually process. It's made me think about how I read. And there's just so much interesting information to get into. And I'm so happy that you're here to kind of walk us through all of it. Um, Cause it's a big learning curve, or at least it was for me. But before we get to all of that, I want to start with just your story and about how you originally got interested in OT and dyslexia. Sure. So I'm not really sure that OT or dyslexia was something I was interested in, but more so how it sort of found me. I was volunteering in the hospital, was introduced to an OT, and they, as they say, the rest is history. And I was practicing mostly in, I know, 
I think that's a, a lot of stories I've heard, very similar. And yes, <laughs> I was working with um, traumatic brain injury and executive cognitive function most of my career. I went on to have my daughter, and lo and behold, as time went on, we discovered that she had dyslexia. And after not having a lot of success in finding treatment for her, I remembered I was an OT. And I say that tongue in cheek, <laughs> a parent, you kind of forget because you're so in it. And so I started working with her as if she'd had a traumatic brain injury and I started seeing changes because we were addressing executive cognitive function. And so long story short, that's that launched me into the outpatient clinic and the clinic I now have today for treating individuals who have dyslexia. Hmm. That's so just fascinating to hear. I relate so much to that story in that I struggled with um POTS symptoms after my pregnancy. And I went through all these things. And it wasn't until I applied my own OT skills to myself. Like it took me a couple of years to be like, oh, I should OT this. Yes. And it made the big a big difference. I'm really curious, just right off the bat, like back in the day, did you find OT specific dyslexia support or were you kind of charting your own path? That's a great question. I started doing all the typical after-school programs that provide reading support. That was my first go-to. And then when that wasn't working, I'd reach out to colleagues, OTs and speech alike, asking what they do if they work with children with dyslexia. And most of them told me no or they refer out, but they really couldn't articulate much after that. So I just paved my own way, like I said, and I took off the dyslexia hat and I realized the brain is the brain. And what's happening with dyslexia is there's a part of the brain that's not working, very similar to TBI. So I thought, it can't hurt. Nothing else is actually working. And so yeah, what I realized that uh, executive cognitive function was the foundational skill to the higher level function of reading, such as, you know, memory, visual, perceptual skills, sensory, all of those things that we know so well as OTs, then I started re-asking the question to my colleagues and said, hey, do you work with memory? Do you work the visual perceptual skills, visual motor, and so forth? And they would say yes. And I said, ah, you can work with individuals with dyslexia. So I really was creating my own path. So thinking of this article today, um, for me, the work of John Stein subverted what I thought dyslexia was. Like I, I feel like I learned so much from reading um, this paper and his previous papers about the condition. As you read the paper, what were your impressions? Like, did it fit with how you understood dyslexia and what you've seen over the years? Yeah, what what were your takeaways? Absolutely. I, what I loved about this article is this research goes way back. It, this is not new research. It, I don't think it really gets recognized in the field of OT. And it confirmed everything that I see. You know, why do phonic programs work great with some individuals and not with others. And so you hear a lot about the science of reading. In my mind, this is the science by the science of reading, right? Because again, yeah. it's foundational skills. As, and as occupational therapy practitioners, meaning OTAs and OTs, we integrate uh, that impact of executive cognitive function that it has on, on reading. The article really opens up that conversation and it narrows the gap to answer, like I said, why it, the reading intervention that's commonly used today, that's created by educators, and that's why it's not addressing all these executive cognitive function, because educators 
are are not the experts in neuro and neuroscience in the application of treating it, whereas OTs, we that is our our area of expertise. So it helps bridge that role of occupational therapy as crucial dyslexia team members for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it even like called it a sensory processing difference or a temporal processing difference, which hearing it in that way put it so squarely in our wheelhouse. Um, Yeah, and that, I guess, surprised me. I'm curious about that, the timing, the timing of that visual and auditory system that he talked about a lot. Did that resonate with you? Is that what you see as like a core difficulty with people that you work with? That's interesting that you say that. What I did learn over time, anecdotally, and then I started collecting data and just keeping track for myself, is we do develop in a sequential format. And so you definitely will have to address those visual issues first and the timing of it all prior to working on the higher level of reading, whether it's phonological awareness, whether it is visual tracking, whether it is identifying what we're seeing you have to make sure that timing is right and your eyes are teeming and everything's working together before you can go. So I think that is very valid, what he says. Yeah, that just helped me understand the condition so so much. And um, there's so much depth behind what he's sharing in the previous articles. Like you could just be learning for, keep keep learning and learning for so long because there's so much there already. And I think there's a lot more to come. Um, again, that's just so in our wheelhouse. Something that I left wondering, um, I feel like I learned a lot about dyslexia as, o- as an OT, but I don't feel like I currently have the words to describe it to someone else. Like, like now I have the word like magnocellular cellular theory. Um, But when you're talking to parents and children, like what specific words are you using um, to talk about this condition? Right. So I like to start out by describing dyslexia as a snowflake. Snowflakes, every snowflake is different. So characteristics in individuals with dyslexia will be very different from one person to the next. And I'm not sure if this goes back to prior research that I've read where it talks about how the brain is either, uh, those neural pathways are either underdeveloped or not developed at all. And so it would depend upon the person to what's developed and what is not. And that's why the characteristics are different. Even generational, the the characteristics could be different. So I think that's why it's so hard to diagnose. And so what I try to let parents know is if it's not making sense, if it's kind of a hot mess (laughs) where they're, you know, your kiddo is doing really well with one thing, but the other thing is just, it seems glitchy and it doesn't seem to make sense because they're so smart and they're doing everything else. That is a big sign of dyslexia and not to disregard that. Um, So those types of clues are really good. And I, I try to let parents know that dyslexia is not curable, but it's absolutely treatable. And so through occupational therapy, we can increase processing skills. We can support memory. We can support sensory motor and sensory integration so they can achieve that grade level or age level learning success and keep up with their classroom. So that's that's pretty much what I share with with parents that are first coming to me. Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. I'm curious to hear like in your brain or that's how you talk about it. I'm curious in your brain 
How are you thinking about it in your OT mind? I'm glad you clarified that in my OT mind and not my brain because it's a whole other story. But <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I always go back to TBI. I mean, that's where my roots are. And I, I just go back to the very simple concept that we can build a neuropathway. So, you know, when you're in the shower and all of a sudden that light bulb goes off and you remembered something you, you, you were trying to remember later. So I just think about the, de the dendrite and the axon coming together and just putting more load on that axon so it wants to connect with that dendrite. And once it connects to that dendrite, you have a synapse. And that is now you have that neural pathway that'll hold on more information. And so when I think about it from an OT perspective, I think about what is the deficit that we're seeing in the evaluation? So let's say uh, we'll look at memory. Let's say it's at the 10th percentile rank for, I don't know, visual memory. So then we're going to expose them to visual memory activities that is at their just right level. And we're increasing that load. Why? Because we need to activate that axon to connect with the dendrite. And once we do that enough times and do that repetition and it connects, we have the neural pathway. And you just keep giving that just right challenge and you grade it up and up and up until their processing speed increases. And so as a therapist, I think about it as just laying down those, those neural pathways. Hmm. Yeah, that at the end of the day, as OTs, we're always trying to activate neuroplasticity. And I love hearing how you're thinking about that in that way. And that connects for me as I was reading the article. I was thinking about a previous episode we did, and it was actually on pain, which sounds totally different than the topic we're talking about today. But it was all about how we have all these parallel pathways in our bodies. And when there's damage, there's compensation. And this feels very similar to me where we're looking for an impairment. We're trying to understand what compensation is happening. Um, and ultimately, we're trying to activate neuroplasticity, which is, I guess I, I was just saying, the, keep saying this subverts my expectation. But for some reason, I thought dyslexia would be different. But it's well, all the same. <laughs> yeah, let me let me kind of. Uh, I'm going to take you down a story that we really hadn't hadn't prepped for, but I think is really meaningful at this point. So, my mentor in my master's degree, uh, he uh, he had me work with one of his patients uh, that had a TBI, and it was very occupation based. And it's something when I started practicing that all that's all OT was. Then we kind of shifted from that, and now there's this renaissance to come back to occupation-based, but I had the opportunity to hear him present at a conference a few weeks ago. And as he was talking about occupation, I started having a little mini meltdown thinking, have I been doing it wrong all these years? And I was starting to get a little anxious because I do a lot of paper pencil tasks and a lot of rote, what we used to call in the day, splinter skills or preparatory tasks. And But I have the data to back it up. It's working. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what have I missed? What have I missed? And so I went up to him on a break and I, I talked to him about it. And I, I think it's important to hear kind of how this played out. So I'm explaining how in therapy, when the, when the client is with me, it's very splinter tasks, very rote activities. But because they only have so much time with me, right? And I have the skills to create an activity. I have the skills to adjust on the fly. But for home therapy or homework, I assign very occupation-based tasks. 
And so that's the that's how you know you're getting that carryover. You get that anecdotal, ah, they're starting to do this easier. It's starting to make sense. And that way you know that what you're working on, those splinter skills, those neural pathways are firing and they are connecting. And now there's a direct application. And so it's really about the combination of both. And again, you know, I, I love what you said about how the brain has neuroplasticity and you kept thinking, yeah, this is how it works with TBI. This is how it works with, with strokes, but we never think of dyslexia. And I think the reason why as practitioners, we don't make that connection is because from an academic standpoint, it's not in our textbooks. It's not a disease or condition we study in school. And so we're not putting those pieces together and we get out into practice. The primary profession that addresses dyslexia are educators. So again, or speech pathologists. So again, we don't think that there's a domain for us. And so I really think if you're an occupational therapist that's interested in dyslexia, don't shy away from it. Just discover that part and piece that's distinctly OT and enter it from that perspective and complement the team in that way. You definitely are able to, to provide that support for a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think about it in that way, that's so in our skill set, that's so what we're accustomed to doing. And it almost feels exciting to see this big need in our skill set that we could have to meet it. I'm curious. I, I want to ask some practical questions about like what sessions can actually look like when you're um, thinking about like screens or assessments. What are you gravitating towards? That's a great question. So most dyslexia screens are really phonics based. So for me as an occupational therapist, they're really not pulling a lot of information out for me. And we, as occupational therapists, don't diagnose. So I typically don't do a screener because by the time the kiddo comes to me, they've either been retained, they've been through several reading um, reading support, after-school activities. Their life has been has been the screener. Their parents can just pretty much tell me what's yeah. going on. I'm like, well, let's evaluate. So I just jump right into evaluation. And again, I go back to cognition. I just keep going back there. And so some... Standardized assessments that I do use is the test for information processing skills to look at auditory and visual memory, um, immediate, long-term, delayed. The uh, test for visual perceptual skills, the TVPS4, I use that because it separates out each visual perceptual skill and will give you a score versus the MVPT that just gives you an overall score. I also look at the Barry visual motor, motor skills. I do not do the... Uh, visual perceptual berry because for the amount of time, it's really a spatial awareness test, just my my personal opinion, and I get more information out of the TVPS. So that so I skip that and I just use the TVPS mm-hmm. for that. I look at the Jordan left-right. I'm hesitant on using it for children over nine. It is standardized for children younger than nine and over nine. The reason I pause when they're over nine is because they get to parts of the test where there's words and sentences And even though the child doesn't have to read them, they think they have to know how to read them. So they get so hung up on reading it correctly, they miss the point of what the test is asking to identify a letter or something out of order. And so I'm never sure when I get that score if it's really a reversal issue or difficulty reading issue. So that clouds it for me. I think it's great for kids under nine. And so those are the primary assessments that I use when I'm I'm looking to see if somebody 
if they if they have dyslexia or characteristics of dyslexia as an occupational therapist, we know that diagnosis may or may not be influential in how we proceed. So just goes back to the basics and you identify where the areas of deficits lie and you treat them regardless of the reason they're coming to you in the diagnosis. And so that's typically how I how I move forward with clients. Yeah. I'm curious, two thoughts related to that. I'm curious, are you thinking about like something like enjoyment of reading or time spent reading? Like, like I've heard you talk about that. Is Are you just looking at that and you're like doing a uh, intuitive assessment of that? Or how, how are you thinking about that component? Yeah. So I have a really in-depth questionnaire that asks about all that lived experience because that's very telling, particularly if you have an individual that's older, such as an adult that has a college education, they will do well on all the testing. So the testing's really not going to help you. It's that lived experience that really helps you. They had difficulty tying their shoes. They had difficulty riding a bike. They um, changed activities that they would engage in because they didn't think they would be able to do it. They typically didn't want to read out loud. They turned in homework late or they never did it. They left their papers at home. They were the class clown. They diverted the attention away <laughs> from what's going on. So all those anecdotal lived experiences are not only really important when you're first doing your initial evaluation, but they are also key to determining your outcomes and if you're making progress. And so I always look as, at anecdotal what our clients think are anecdotal, but we know our engagement in activities or occupation of choice. And I compare them with objective test scores. So for example, typically within the first 30 days of working with a client, you're going to see more engagement and enjoyment in their activities of choice or their occupation, such as, you know, reaching for that book. I, I had a mom come in and tell me that she went to go check on her kiddo who was in bed and he was under the sheets with a book and a flashlight. And I'm like, you didn't tell him to go to She's like, no, I'm like, right, like, great. Because, you know, or or I had a, a child reach for a book for the first time. He was in fifth grade uh, waiting in a doctor's office. He reached for a book to look at. He had never reached for a book before. Being willing to read out loud in class, feeling like they can start keeping up with classwork, having self-concept and self-esteem come back. I, I had one child tell me they felt like they could now go to school and become a cosmetologist. And this is a child that came from a long line of poverty where parents were unable to really secure jobs that provided stable income. And so that that was a huge leap for for this family and for her. And, and so those are the things you should, should start hearing within the first month or so. And of course, they get stronger as time goes on. From an objective standpoint, you should see all of your test scores going up into that average or above average range. And so that's how you're kind of uh, teaming them together. You mentioned this a little bit, but I was also thinking about um, the self-esteem, the mental health. I felt like that wasn't mentioned much in the paper, but right. I can just see that being a struggle in a setting where reading is such an important part of every day. How are you thinking about that part of it? Is that like an ultimate outcome for you? Are you just watching that? The self-esteem, mental health, um, are you teaming up with other people? That seems like such an important part of the puzzle here. I'm really glad you asked that question. So for about 12 years, 
I addressed the executive cognitive function primarily. And now I've shifted. And now my primary focus is on mental health. And even before when I was addressing executive cognitive function, I always look at that lived experience, including self-esteem, mental health, because anxiety and depression and uh, suicide ideation and death by suicide all runs very high with individuals with dyslexia. There's a direct correlation. And so meeting a child where they are. So let's say, for example, you are working with a child and their, their behavior is not conducive to what you want to work on. They're acting out in some way. And uh, from the goodness of our heart, whether it's us or a teacher or a parent, we may encourage them to keep going. We may try to make it easier for them. We may punish them, right? A parent might get frustrated and say, okay, no TV if you don't finish this assignment or whatever the consequences might be. Well, what's really happening, if you take that pause, is what that child's probably, or individual, is probably trying to convey, may not have the words to convey, is what you are asking me to do is so infinitely challenging that whatever consequences you give me, it's much easier to deal with than this. And when you, when you realize it from that perspective, your whole approach will change it to asking, wow, I can see this is really difficult for you. What does it feel like to be asked to do this? And I think if we meet them where they are and we keep that self-esteem and self-concept intact and we do nothing else, we have been a huge success because we've kept them open to learn from the next practitioner. I think it's when we, we, we feel very pushed as practitioners to check off those boxes that we need to get done because we have a timeline, especially if you're, in a, you're a school-based OT. You have the IEPs. You have certain benchmarks you have to hit. It's a real struggle uh, to push that agenda versus backing up and meeting the child where they are. So in my practice, when I addressed executive cognitive functions, and especially now since I'm centered more into mental health and more into not only the child, but the whole family, I'm addressing that whole dynamic, is that foundation. Because if they are not connected and they don't see meaning and they don't see value and and they're they are feeling like they are buried and struggling and you keep putting stuff on top of them to work on, there's such a disconnect, you will not make progress. So I'm glad that you brought that up because that is that is that is the first and most important thing that you can do when you're working with your children with dyslexia. OT practitioners, we're the expert at doing client-centered whole person care, addressing that psychosocial need um, at the same time when we're developing treatment interventions for for our clients? Great question. I think you've alluded to this, but I want to hit the like nail on the head directly. Like as you're thinking of outcomes and goals, and it sounds like maybe this has shifted over time, like what areas are those in now? Like what what does that look like now for you? Yeah. So I think you just alluded to it, but they are twofold. I may make a goal where the child initiates class participation, whereas before they may not have. I may make a goal where they initiate and they read in class and they report no anxiety doing it. You know, those might be some goals that I relate around their mental health. But I'm also looking at test scores because test scores are so objective and measurable. So I may make a goal where I want their auditory memory. I want them to remember 
I want their percentile rank to be in the 30th percentile rank or the 25th percentile rank because that's average. So they can remember three-step verbal instructions. Why? So they can keep up in the classroom when the teacher says, take out your book, grab your pencil, turn to page 93. They're like, boom, 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 and they've got it. And so my goals are, are, are occupation-based in terms of being a student, being able to follow through with um, any activity that they need to work on or even goals for home. It could really fall uh, spill over into bedtime routine. Maybe they like visual cues, so they'll be able to follow five visual prompts because maybe they have a chart for their bedtime routine, pictures of brushing teeth, getting in their jammies, taking a shower, getting a drink of water, whatever that might be. And so they need to have their test scores high enough so they have that cognitive ability to follow through on those cues. So there is a balance between making your goals functional, but in the end, they all have to be client-centered around what's important to the client, and they all have to address mental health to a piece because you cannot work with somebody that has a physical disability and not address the mental health components. We are all mental health therapists. Yeah, and it sounds to me like you're headed into this realm, too, of thinking about self-determination, um, which is another topic that we've had on the podcast recently. And it sounds like in parallel with colleagues who are working with autism and ADHD, you are also finding the importance of focusing on these self-determination skills. Um, and I think OTs are really poised to do that. Would you agree with that? I would. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a colleague a few weeks ago, and she was asking me questions about, it was it was handwriting, and that, that relates to dyslexia in the sense of communicating our th- thoughts and organizing them on paper. And it was interesting because she kept saying, I really want him to be able to do, and she would listen. She kept saying, I want him, I want him, I want him. And, and I listened, and I said, I haven't heard the client's voice. Hmm. Yeah. Because she kept telling me how the client was acting up and not the behavior wasn't conducive to learning. And so I really encouraged her to get back to what is it that they want and what is it that is important to them? Because, you know, we think about the team and the team approach to dyslexia and that child or that individual, that family is a really big part of that team. So self-determination, but also intrinsic motivation, I guess, what's meaningful to them, we always have to come back to that. Yeah, yeah. That helps me understand how you're thinking about assessment, goal setting. I want to hear a little bit more about the intervention part. I think I'd love to hear like what your favorite interventions to do are, um, what your go-tos are. Yeah. And what, what do we as OT bring specifically? We're usually working with this on a team. Like what's sure what's so, our place here? Yeah. So what I would love to see is when you have a child or an individual that has struggles is for OT to be brought in at the beginning. OT, PT, speech, psychology teacher, reading specialist, uh, PE, music, art, they all need to be brought in from the beginning. And they all test in their own domain. And so if I'm testing, let's say they had a low score of um, form form closure, we'll just pick that out. Some of my favorite things would be to do design copy, or there's a half a design, can they copy the rest? A lot of drawing activities, tracing, scanning left to right, some visual exercises as well. 
and uh, for memory, also working on maybe we're taking a walk um, down the hall in the classroom and we see a bulletin board and I may have them take a look at the bulletin board for a minute or two and then turn around. They tell me everything they can see and then I can bring that task throughout my session and, you know, every five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, ask them what they saw. And so we're really looking at that delayed recall. I try to use what's going on in their day and their everyday activity to come up with treatment. And so another great memory task is, uh, let's say mom's picking the kiddo up from school and she has errands to run. She'll uh, let her child know what the errands are in order she wants to do them. And then he, he or she needs to remember what those what that list was each time they go someplace. And so my treatments really revolve around every day whatever's going on in that child's life, uh, for a few reasons, it's meaningful. They see the purpose of it. And parents do not have time to do one more thing. And so, you know, how do we make sure that our home exercise program or what's going on in sessions being carried through? But I, I really feel like, so we do our evaluation. I know I'm getting off tangent. Let, let's go back. So I do the evaluation and I, I score it, but what I would love to see from a team approach is everybody come to the table with their scores. And I may be scratching my head and saying, I saw memory really low on one section, but another section it was really high. And maybe the psychologist or the speech therapist noticed something that can link that together, or they can say, oh, maybe I need to retest them and bring in another test. And then the team comes back together with the family whether it's the parent and or the child, depending upon the age and the appropriateness of, of bringing the child in this early. And as the team, they decide what the plan will be and letting the parent think about it over time before they sign off on the plan. And so I think if we do, do a lot of these things, I know it takes more time, but if we front load our team and our process, I think we'll have more success. I also think the child needs to be brought in on what's going on before they're pulled out of class first time. Because all this time they feel like they've been done too. We need to include them. Um, do they want to participate? These are all real important things to help you ensure you have success and you have the outcomes that you that you are wanting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really setting that stage for self-determination. Something the article made me think about was it spent quite a bit of time talking about strengths. And the science definitely, that was totally anecdotal. That was what he thought. But it definitely made me think about a strengths-based approach. And no matter like whether what he says is true and comes to fruition, the reality is our clients do have strengths for us to leverage. How do you think about a strengths-based approach in leveraging a child's strengths? Absolutely. I think you need to leverage the child's strengths when it comes to accommodations. I think that's where you really play them out. So for example, you have a child that has average or above average visual memory. You're going to want to make sure that you provide education to the family and and the school on strategies and accommodations that are visual. So can they use their smartphone to take a picture of the notes on the board? Can they use highlighters? Can they use uh, cards? Can the teacher have an outline already made or notes shared with the student? Can the student share notes with another buddy? And so I really encourage strengths to be utilized when it comes to setting up strategies and accommodations so they can learn at that moment. And then therapy comes in and we are focusing our intervention 
on the areas that are below average or the deficits and weaknesses that we see based on the evaluation. And I think together, it really builds for uh, the potential of strong outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. In a simple sense, you're one of focus just as much on the high scores to be like, oh, that's really interesting. How can I leverage that? Well, here's an example. Yeah. So uh, the most common strategy and accommodation for an individual with dyslexia is to give extended time. How do you know extended time will work for them? Well, because it's worked for every other, everybody else. And that's typically how, how strategies and accommodations are provided. But everything we do as therapists, whether it's treatment intervention or providing a strategy or accommodation, needs to be evidence-based. So I really encourage practitioners when they're making these decisions, go back to your evaluation. So we look at the tests for perception, um, test, tests for, um, I, I just lost it. <laughs> That's like it just fell They're out. all so hard. To <laughs> yeah. The test for information processing skills. Phew, okay, that's it. But it tests for delayed recall. And so if your delayed recall is in the 25th percentile rank or higher, which is average, 25 to 75th percentile rank is average, then yes, it, asking them for delayed recall to remember the 13 colonies on Monday for a test on Fridays, probably very reasonable to give them extended time for. But if their delayed recall is in the fifth percentile rank, there's nothing that, that you're going to do. There isn't a strategy in the world that's going to help them. And if you give them extended time, during that extended time, they're thinking, I should know this. They're giving me time to do it. I'm so dumb. I can't do it. Why can't I do it? And you have that negative talk just starting to increase. So at that in, in that situation, extended time is not a good strategy to provide. However, if you are doing something with immediate recall and their scores were high in immediate, in immediate recall yet low in delayed recall and they were reading a passage, but the first time they read it, they were really robotic about it, uh, having difficulty decoding or sounding out the words. The second time they read it, they were getting it a little more fluent. They were able to sound out and decode the words. The third time they're reading it, maybe the first time they're comprehending what they're reading, in that case, giving extra time would be successful because you're asking them to understand what they are just reading right now. And so I think it's really important to look at the high and the low scores to set up that child for success. You've done such a beautiful job weaving in what the team approach looks like to dyslexia. I want to ask two follow-up questions, kind of down totally different paths. Um, I'll just say them both, and then you can take it from there. Sure. I wanted to talk about like getting an eye doctor involved and what that process looks like. I know that I have um, some difficulty with my vision, but still it's related to how my eyes like track motion together. And I see how easily those could be um, confused or or how easily a misdiagnosis could happen. So I want to ask, ask about that track and then tease out a little bit more about this involvement of the family and the family's role in this team approach. Okay, so let's take other practitioners first. I absolutely do refer. Typically, when a child comes into me, I will ask if they've had an auditory or visual acuity exam by an eye doctor and or, you know, and an audiologist. And if they have, I kind of let it sit for a while. But if I'm still seeing difficulties with tracking or visual perceptual skills, I may ask for developmental op optometrists to take a look as well to see if the eyes are teaming together, if those muscles are working together. Uh, to either recommend vision therapy or recommend to us what we can do because occupational therapists can do that as well. I also 
if they have difficulty with phonics, phonetic awareness, you know, interpreting sound with a letter or different uh, letter combinations making different sounds, and it's oh, or they have difficulty uh, processing. I want you to go get your hat, and you turn around. The kids petting the cat. You know, are they processing correctly? I may refer them to an audiologist for auditory processing testing. Auditory processing disorder is extremely rare. It's about two to three percent. If you have dyslexia, it may go up to a whopping of 5%. Very, very rare. However, you can still have auditory processing issues. And so an audiologist is the only one that can diagnose that. And a speech-language pathologist would be the person or the discipline to treat. And so I absolutely rely on referring to experts. I really feel that there isn't any one discipline that can successfully address dyslexia, and it takes a team. I am not an expert in reading. I will refer the child to a reading specialist once their memory and their sensory and all their other executive cognitive functions skills are supported and at average. Second question, the family. I have seen it all, or I think I've seen it all. You have one, one of the parents who have dyslexia, and they're stuck in fear. When you tell them what's going on with their child, they are thinking about their own life replaying, and they even struggle hearing what you're saying. You have the other parent who doesn't have dyslexia, and they just want the child to study more. They think it doesn't exist. And the other parents making it up. You have one family where the older sibling has dyslexia and the younger sibling does not, but the younger sibling is reading at a higher level than the older sibling. So all of these scenarios, and there's many, many more, really play a toll on the family dynamic. Because when you have a child that has dyslexia, let's say, for example, everyone loves them at school. There were people pleaser, everything's great. But they have worked so hard at keeping it together at school that when they get home, the meltdown ensues. It can engulf the entire family dynamic for the evening. And so you may have some siblings that feel they're not getting the attention that they they need. You have parents who are angry and yelling or they're pulling their hair out there at their wits end. And so really bringing the family together to support them in terms of awareness of let's identify what is the behavior where the child knows they can totally get away with it, so they're going to they're gonna do this? Versus what is the characteristic of dyslexia? And the reason you're seeing that is because what you're asking them to do is so hard. So what can you give grace and adapt? And then what are you parenting? So to be able to identify those two things are really important. And to talk about kind of like the pillars of lifestyle medicine, talking about act- activity and healthy eating, and a sense of community and other activities, you know, encouraging your child to be involved in activities that they are successful in, whether it be sports or Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or whatever that might be for them. When you can bring the family together and teach the family what's going on, they can support that child in a healthier way. And the whole family dynamic can be much happier. And it's just a a nicer place to be. So I I think that's really an important part of of what we can offer as occupational therapists. Hmm. Yeah, I've been shifting my thinking lately to thinking about the environment as being the attitudes of people in our environment as a major um, factor. And I hear you saying that's what you're thinking about as well. And that is, yeah, that's just intuitively so important, so foundational. And I've loved that you've arrived at this place of working on it. For OTs who are listening now and they want to learn more, where do they go? And I have to preface 
that also by saying, I feel like there is not enough OT specific <laughs> research out there. Um, well, there's that. I don't know. I don't know why this has happened, but somehow I feel like we dropped the ball. But from that standpoint, where where can we go? <laughs> yes. So I would agree with you. There is not enough uh, professional development specifically on occupational therapy and dyslexia. There is in the psychosocial. There is in education. And so I have a uh, YouTube channel that I just throw up videos. There are free access that may help kind of support what it is the therapist is doing. PESI is also one of the leaders in dyslexia professional development. They have so great, I know they have um, speech therapists, psychologists, but all the tools are very useful for OT. And Theramoves is another professional development company that offers CEUs for OTs and dyslexia. I also encourage looking at AOTA and your state conference and what they offer for CEUs because I often find myself selecting CE courses that talk about executive cognitive function, occupational-based treatment. I, I go to those courses to add to my dyslexia treatment toolbox. So even though it doesn't say dyslexia, are you looking for a course that's addressing an executive cognitive function that has a huge critical role in the success of reading? And if so, I would go ahead and gravitate toward that. And just podcasts such as yours, there's several podcasts out there that that offer discussions on dyslexia and dysgraphia. So I really encourage just taking a look at those as well. There is so much to unpack from this episode for me. I feel like this has not been a strength of OTs historically. Where do we need to go in the future to help meet the need out there? I was really surprised that dyslexia is the most common form of neurodivergence from what we know the prevalence rates right, aren't perfect, right, sure. but from what we know it is the most common form. How do we step up to meet the need out there? Right. So I think when we when we look at dyslexia, we look at credentialing. Credentials, micro-credential certifications seem to be a big theme right now and a big trend. And I know when I first started practicing, educators who were credentialed in Orton-Gillingham really struggled with why I was addressing OT, why I was addressing dyslexia as an OT because I wasn't Orton-Gillingham certified. And I was trying to advocate for the role of OT. We work with cognition and they just, you know, it wasn't resonating. So reaching out to your state and or professional uh, national organizations like AOTA who creates credentials, micro-credentials and certificates and asking, you know, I, I don't think things get created unless there's a demand for it. And, you know, reaching out to AOTA and saying, hey, do you happen to have a certificate or a credential or a micro-credential on dyslexia, at, you know, that you can earn a badge? And that can go on your resume. It can go on your email. And, and people can see that you have this extra education. I think that is definitely the direction I would like to see our profession go so we can support, you know, we have so many therapists that are working either in pediatric outpatient or school-based therapists that we're there, right? We are physically there. So that I think would be a great way to make sure we have a role at the table and give credibility to what we can do to our colleagues and our team members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope that this is an area of focus that grows for us, that more people um, take this as their primary focus 
area. I'd love to see more entrepreneurs in this area. I know that you have a history there and I would just love to see that continue to grow too. We've talked about so many important things today. Is there a final takeaway that you'd like to leave us all with or anything that's percolated to the top of your mind as a final thought for us? Yes. And it's one of the first thoughts I had after I really learned a lot about dyslexia. Don't look back thinking that you haven't supported your clients enough. Because just being an OT, and I don't mean that like you're only an OT, but because you're an OT, you are intuitively already addressing those areas of dyslexia, whether you knew it or not, because you're basing your treatment intervention off of your evaluations of what you know as an OT. So stick with your intuition. That's what led me down the road I'm on now. And so just do what you do best. You got this. Penny, thank you so much for being a trailblazer in this area. Thank you for sharing today. And I'm excited to see where these conversations go. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. Wow, you all, there was so much learning that happened in this episode, and I really want to hear your thoughts on all of this. If you are a casual listener of the podcast, let us know your thoughts by giving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. But to really discuss the implications of all of this, the best place to do so is in the OT Potential Club. We'll have all of the mentioned resources organized in there for you, and we'll be watching for your comments in our forum. And if you are interested in earning a CEU certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head into the OT Potential Club, where you can take a five-question test, and when you pass, we will generate a certificate for your time today. Okay, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps keep you informed and inspired as an OT professional. Take care, and we'll talk next time.